Welcome to the National Civic Council's podcast, A Stronger Australia. The National Civic Council has advocated for the Australian people since its founding by Bob Santa Maria in the early 1940s. Today, it advocates for an economically and culturally strong Australia, which protects the vulnerable and supports the family as the cornerstone of society. During our podcast, we hear from a wide variety of speakers and experts on how to create a better Australia. We hope you enjoy. In our coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic, we have sought to provide clear, well-summarised information not found elsewhere. In this podcast, NCC President Patrick Byrne interviews a young Australian working on the COVID frontline in Minnesota, USA. He describes the impact of COVID-19 on his patients, their families, on the American health system and himself. We think you will find his insights most revealing. Greetings, this is Pat Byrne from Newsweekly Podcasts. Today I'd like to welcome David Walsh from Minnesota, where he works in the smaller of two hospitals in the city, about 100,000 people, about the size of Geelong. Welcome, David. Hi. Now, David, you're Australian board, studied psychology, married a girl from Grand Rapids, have three young children, and both you and your wife are nurses. What area of nursing do each of you work in? I work in intensive care predominantly, and then my wife works in neonatal intensive care. A bit of contrasting background between Australia and the US. Whereas the US is only 72% vaccinated, Australia will soon have well over 90% of those over 16 vaccinated. Although burdened with lockdowns and border closures across the country, we have had around 1,500 deaths. If the US had the same deaths proportionally, it would have had about 20,000 deaths instead of around about 800,000. Australia has been the lucky country once again, but as restrictions ease and Australia opens up, we can expect more infections and hospitalisations. So David, your experience in nursing COVID patients would be valuable to what Australia may soon face. Can I ask, when did you start working with COVID patients in ICU? I... uh began actually I graduated as a nurse in December 2019 and so I literally have known nothing else uh, other than than COVID when I started in April of 2020 so um, I actually haven't seen I haven't seen a lot of my co-workers faces which is wild to think about we all, all wearing masks ever since so about 18 months so almost 20 months could you describe for us the treatments and drugs provided to COVID patients in ICU? So in ICU, we, we, we see people. So there's a medical floor that has COVID patients there as well. And um, usually they're on stable oxygen levels, you know, giving them a, a few litres, nasal cannula, or maybe on a mask. Or, but as things go up and things start, to, things start to look a little bit more shaky, they come over to the ICU and and the, the wild thing about COVID is that the, these patients, they, they look fine. They feel fine. They feel like they can get up and walk around. It's just, it's wild. But their oxygen is, you know, at 80%. You know, you, know, you get a patient who's, who's looking, breathing easily, looks just like me, you know, except for she's had some oxygen on. And she gets up just to the, moves to her bedside table, stands up. Oxygen's at seventy percent. It's wild to to experience this. And in ICU, the treatments initially basically just oxygen therapy. 
Um, so you start with high flow nasal cannula, then you, you got modified vo- versions of that. There's there's basically a CPAP and a BiPAP, which is it adds a little bit more pressure into into the lungs to keep them open, as well as the oxygen supplementation. And then the last last uh, treatment for oxygen therapy would be for, for to be ventilated, and um, we found that that we, we put that off as much as we can um, just because the, the lungs during COVID, they, they're so inflamed and they get really damaged and ventilation, mechanical ventilation um, is, is pretty traumatic. Um, but other than that, we have some, have some medicines that give a, a couple of percent of an increased chance of survival. Um, so we got remdesivir and baricitinib is a new one that was uh, we've just started using just like, few months ago or something um what and then like vitamin c zinc uh vitamin d you've seen we've kind of seen those in the news probably they've kind of been used the whole time just because we know that they help your immune system function um other than that yeah keeping patients nice and dry so making sure that they they're peeing enough and pee or peeing a good amount versus how much they're taking in so you don't want their you don't want their lungs to um be wet so to speak you know just going to dry them out a little bit um yeah and then uh that's kind of that's probably like the, the generalized view of, of how how kind of what you'd expect for a COVID patient there's also some like maybe some nebulizer treatments some breathing treatments that respiratory therapy does and um that, that obviously helps as well just to kind of keep things dilated and keep things keep people coughing and breathing could you give us a case brief of a survivor and someone who has not survived and how the disease progressed yeah, it's kind of it, like I said earlier. It's you see people and you're like, you you look normal. Like looking at you, my general impression of you is like someone who is breathing fine, but your oxygen is terrible. And I've seen I've seen uh, uh, probably within the same week, I've seen people who right on the cusp of needing to be ventilated, mechanically ventilated, and um, right on the cusp. And then I come back the next day and. They've actually they've transferred out and they're on the medical floor on a few liters of oxygen. And then I see other people that are like that, that don't that doesn't happen. And um, and that, yeah, I come back the next day and oh yeah, there it is the breathing tube. And uh, yeah, that needed to happen. It kind of it kind of it's very very difficult to predict uh, with COVID. Kind of people we keep people hanging right on the cusp until the very last moment just because we want to avoid ventilating them mechanically. So it's 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 kind of a toss up. Um, I've seen I've seen people, uh, yeah, obviously come out fine, and then other people who just the the battle going on in their lungs is too much, and they just doesn't work anymore. And usually, the decision to to mechanically ventilate happens very rapidly. It's like okay, you're eighty percent, and it's not coming up, and you were fine all day, and now it's not working somehow. So. That's that's and it's like we and then you, you call in a doctor and we're ventil and we're we're getting you a breathing tube and it's happening and then that's what we do for the next half hour is we, we make that happen. But I've seen people who look extremely critical not not actually end up mechanically ventilated, which is which is strange to see too. As families can be present but the dying, have you nursed many to their end? Yeah, I have. Yep. Um, it's been a, it was a busy few weeks actually. Lo- a lot of long COVID. People kind of, and and it kind of depends as well on like family decision making. Some sometimes families are pretty understanding that this the family, their loved one is not going to be making it out of here, and so then they uh, 
might remove remove care, go to comfort measures um, soon, but sometimes it's it's two three months before that happens. So yeah, I mean, we yeah, I've I've experienced a fair amount of that. Did Delta make a big difference? Yeah, for sure. Yeah the the first round. I, so I, I've had a progression in my my uh, concern regarding COVID. I, it's hard to know, you know, uh, with each variant, it's different. It's hard, like the Omicron coming on, it's looking like it's going to be less severe. Hopefully it stays that way. But yeah, the first one, I was very cautious. I, I didn't know how to make a judgment. Delta I, has convinced me, though, that, that COVID is very serious. Um, I, I, was, I was kind of gathering data for the first two peaks, and this, this, this Delta peak has been very convincing. What proportion of hospitalizations and deaths in your experience are unvaccinated? Um, I mean, I, I can't say because I don't gather numbers and I don't keep them, obviously. But I would say most for sh- most most deaths would be unvaccinated people. Um, I've probably I've probably I think I've only seen three vaccinated people pass and they had very severe comorbidities that 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 were um either like yeah like respiratory related comorbidities that were very very severe um and others that they and they were vaccinated um i've seen some uh, i don't think i've seen another vaccinated person not make it um yeah then uh, and then a whole host of unvaccinated people in fact when I when I see when when I see an unvaccinated person come to the ICU, it's really it's really a fine line. Like I was talking about earlier, like I really don't trust them. I don't trust that they're going to be okay, and they 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 might be fine. Like I'm okay with I want them to be fine, but I I really am cautious and watching them very closely because I just don't know. COVID hit Minnesota in waves. How does the hospital cope as numbers of patients rise? And how many waves have you had through? I believe we've had three. And this is our long third wave here. Uh, we, we, how do we cope with the numbers? The numbers are interesting. The num- the, that's an interesting question, I'd say, because it's not just like if you get a septic patient come through, you know, and, and they're, they have liver failure, kidney failure, heart failure, you know, you're like, oh, this patient... They're very sick. They're taking up a hospital bed, but it's not going to be for very long. COVID, on the other hand, they these people just sit in the ICU, like they just hang on, and which is, I mean, that's just how it is. I'm not complaining about that. I'm just saying, like, that it's not. It doesn't. It's not actually the number is not that great of people. It's just that they are there for so long that. Um, for any other disease, we might see 30, 40, 50 patients through these beds, but now we're just seeing 10 or five, you know, as they kind of sit there for three months deciding what to do. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's a different numeric because of the longevity of the illness. Studies of health workers indicate that many are suffering PTSD and anxiety from the pandemic. How's your hospitals, nurses and doctors coping physically and psychologically? with the waves of COVID patients? Nursing is in a rough rough shape. I mean, I think it's national here. I don't know what it's like elsewhere, but 
there's this, there's already a huge nursing shortage um, that was predicted over 10 years ago that this was going to happen. The um, On top of that, uh, the ability for people to, the resiliency of people is much different as well. I feel like a lot of people are quitting. A lot of people are, are, are just done. In August and September, we had, out of our own ICU at 20 five leave or something which is like a third of our staff yeah it's i mean it's it's very heavy it's heavy but i would say at the same time um people who have stayed we're rallying together pretty well i mean we we have a good attitude we come there we get things done we're so used to COVID at this point that we're just i mean we're pretty used to sats of 88 percent and <laughs> and watching people desaturate when they get up to the bathroom or whatever it is and so it's we're coming together well for those that are still there but it's taken a, nursing has taken a huge hit from this we just people weren't ready for it mentally ex- existentially ready for it do you have a coping strategy i guess i uh i think about my patients a fair amount after i leave kind of just ponder them and and keep them in mind and I pray for them. And when I'm at work, I, I just do my very best. And I'm, I'm, I feel very comfortable that, that um, with that being my coping strategy of just being, just making sure I did my best. Um, the, the challenging thing is, is it's, 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 it's so repetitive and, and you're seeing so much of it that sometimes you can slip away from doing, doing what's like doing your work as you have to do just like you know any other job it's like yeah yeah it's kind of like skate by here scoot by there but um i'm very committed to to making sure at the end of the day i can say yeah i think i just i just did what i was supposed to do and um i'm kind of letting that be uh that's my that's my coping strategy thus far um i think if i was to take too take too much of this on personally i think that i wouldn't function and so I'm consciously just allowing, allowing the work to stay at work and, uh, and just doing my best when I'm there. And then, um, but then also just keeping my patients in mind at, at home and, and, you know, not, but not letting that really kind of get in the way of, of life. Cause that, that is life sometimes, you know, sometimes that is, that's where people are at. And it, I think it's afforded me a, a different, uh, well, maybe this is just healthcare in general, but I, I have a, a, a my like my involvement in death and dying and critical situations i think that it has helped me appreciate life a lot more uh just to just kind of sit back and enjoy what's what's important and my kids and my family my wife and and just kind of really make sure that we do this right so that when that day comes for me and for them and whatever you know whatever happens that we really loved each other as well as we could have the treatments for managing COVID in hospitals changed from the start of the pandemic, given the changing knowledge and data collection? Yeah, you, so you'll see, um, this is kind of a pulmonology intensivist question for sure, cause, but I, I can give you a kind of a rough answer just from my experiences. So initially the, the, need, to, the need to ventilate, mechanically ventilate soon, that was a bad choice. They did that in New York and it just led to so many people dying. So now we, well now we delay that to the last minute. That seems to help. And then um, 
so the volume. I mean, we talk about volumes and pressures and things like that. That's that's adapted quite a quite a fair amount to to um to to do less trauma to have the ventilator do less trauma to the patient's lungs. So that's a, that's been another adaptation that's been um, been helpful as well as uh, um, the high flow nasal cannula and the BiPAP settings. Uh, the what we've seen is doctors of doctors of prescribed less pressure, but um, yeah, you know, just changing some volumes and, and percentages, kind of thing, to kind of help people not not uh, experience barotrauma or volume trauma is what it's called, so that their lungs basically don't have trauma um, from from giving them too much air or too much pressure. So yeah, I mean, it, it's it's adapted it's adapted a fair amount, and then. Um, like remdesivir has come through as uh, as an FDA approved drug. Uh, baricitinib, I don't know if that's it's not FDA approved for the purposes of COVID, but I think it's for rheumatoid arthritis. But it's useful in COVID. I think it, it's like helps a two to three percent or something increased chance of survival as long as your kidney and liver is doing okay. And um, so that's been helpful. But yeah, there's no specific drugs just because it's a viral illness. There's no specific drugs actually that. Uh, that we can treat it with sadly, but, but yeah, it's just, again, that, that 1% or 2% or type thing, you know, that's the kind of thing that you, if you, if you think about a vaccination, you know, that's what we have. You, you, you have this, that you know, it helps you X number of percent. Sometimes it, it, it might not take it away a hundred percent, but it's kind of just, if that's what you have, then, then there you go. How have the vaccines reduced the death toll and hospitalization in comparison to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic? That's a, that's a that's an interesting question because Delta was was worse than the other ones. So the other the other two variants, whatever Alpha and whatever Beta or something, I don't know, whatever they were for us in Minnesota, they were they they attacked they they got people who were probably kind of they were extremely sick already, and so them being affected, uh, infected, and then. Uh, come into the hospital, we kind of like, yeah, these people were very, very sick to begin with. So, um, and they, this was pre-vaccination. Then people started to get vaccinated you know, six months later, seven months later. And then, uh, and then Delta comes with a, I think Minnesota was 50 or 60% vaccinated when it came through. And um, it feels like, it's, it's hard to say, it feels like despite the vaccinations, Delta has just really done a number. Um, I wouldn't say it's be- it, that the vaccinations have done nothing. I just think that Delta seems. I think just Delta is worse. It's just more dangerous, which is the danger of COVID itself. Is like is that we don't know how bad the variant is going to be, and so it makes it such a risky game. Um, but it seems, yeah, I think I think it's dependent on. I think it's dependent on the variant uh, as well as, but the vaccination status. For the Delta, for the Delta variant, vaccination status is, draws a very clear line, I believe. So, how important is vaccination? Yeah, I think probably. I mean, if you're talking about any of these medicines we give you, probably apart from oxygen, probably give you a two three percent chance increased chance of survival. I think vaccination would be upwards of like seventy percent. You know, so if you if you're if you're a numbers guy, you're looking to try to you know, keep your odds, you know, play play your numbers right. That is that is the that is the the most effective treatment 
for COVID is to be vaccinated. After you've had people, after you've had people survive ICU, do you find that there are many coming back later on still sick into hospital? After they've survived ICU, do they come back still sick? Yeah, they do. Yeah, we've um, so the inflammation met pathways that COVID leaves behind. Uh, I've seen it affect kidneys, liver, no, kidneys, hearts, and brains mostly. Well, the brain's through through clotting problems. I see a lot of strokes come through. Kidneys, um, or just the kidneys, they just get shot, maybe from medications, but also just from um, just from not having enough, not ha- like poorly hydrated, not able to breathe. Uh, as- the acidotics of the kidneys are working overdrive to to provide bicarbonate, and then and then hearts as well. I see like a lot of heart failure, cardiogenic shock, even, and then not to mention the lungs, like pulmonary emboli and things like that come through from again from clotting problems um yeah they do it's very common people are people are claiming that that's actually a result of vaccination and that's that's a difficult one to defend in all honesty but yeah i do see it do see long term and then the brain i don't think i mentioned that one yet it's i see i think maybe it's just said that there's strokes strokes caused by clotting issues yet again so covid just this inflammation stuff it 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 causes major. It does cause major long-term problems, and the hard thing is, is like, the chances are it's probably you're probably going to be fine. But but if you're in that you know six percent whatever that, that does have five one percent, I don't even know what the number is. But if you're in that one percent, oh bad luck, buddy. Like I'm sorry. Like, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but yeah. Do you want to play that game? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we really understand what that means to, to want to play that game, because it seems like a pretty dumb game. Among those you treat who are unvaccinated, what were their reasons for their hesitancy? There's religious objection would probably be the most, the, the biggest reason. I think secondly would be a, a mistrust of the government. I don't know if that, mistrust of the government would be first probably, more than religious hesitant, more than religious reasons. Um, I think people people don't trust the American government. Initially, when I was vaccinated, I uh, I didn't trust the vaccine. I wasn't like I trust this. <laughs> I um I I got the vaccine because the only way to get good data on if this works is by giving it to people. <laughs> and so I was like, I may as well be that guy that that gets it. You know, and I think a lot of my coworkers felt the same. Like, well, just give it to me, and we'll see what happens. Um, but over the course of like the next uh, eight months, it took me about six months maybe to, to be really seriously convinced. Um, and so if that was true for me, you know, if, if it took, if it took six months for me to be convinced, I guess I can understand why it would take other people a while to be convinced, um, which is okay. I mean, pe- we take time to change our minds. We, you know, we take time to adapt our thinking, but it's, it's a pretty deadly game. Have many of the vaccine hesitant relied on alternative preventative measures and treatments? Yeah, I have a few, like the ivermectin group and the uh, fluoroquinolone or whichever. No, not fluoroquinolone, levaquin. Hydroxychloroquine, is that it? Yeah, that's right. That's what I meant. Yeah, so um, you've got to, I've seen a few of those come through and I, I, I don't know I don't know if it's uh, you know their frequent dosages of those have really changed their outcomes. Um, 
uh, it'd be great if if there were some medications that would greatly greatly change outcomes. That'd be awesome. Hopefully, we find find them and use them. But yeah, it doesn't seem to me. It seems like it's still kind of a roundabout status quo. You know, as in we we can't really trust them if they're unvaccinated. Um, we don't know if they're gonna just kind of pop off and need to be ventilated. Yeah, they, it, it, we have a few of them come through, but nonetheless, it hasn't hasn't been extremely effective um, if they if they have been doing it. From your experiencing nursing many critically ill COVID patients and some to their death, what is the impact on families of losing loved ones, uh, particularly due to vaccine he- hesitancy? Oh well, so vaccine hesitancy, but based on religious reasons, is usually those people do fine because I think that they're not really seeing straight. Um, they like they they've used they've used their religion to kind of cover up truth instead of to uncover truth, which is what religion should be doing for them. Because of that, I think that um, see they, they uh, I've seen this myself. Like your loved one dies, and they they still don't seem to to get it they don't seem to i mean i've I've seen them actually just just after several hours of them sitting with the body still not really understand that they're gone and i can understand that that's a natural that's a natural thought to to not be able to transition from someone being there to not being there that that happens a fair amount but in this particular in these particular cases i see just these people really they really they really think that um, that they're immune, that, that, because, that God's going to save them, um, and that death isn't going to touch them. Which you know, in a spiritual sense, that might be true, but in a physical sense, it seems it is very untrue. And so then, then I would go with the the, the vaccine um, people who don't trust the government that, that that kind of that kind of hesitancy that I mentioned earlier. I, I've seen a lot of them get super sick and then say, man, I really, I really should have taken the vaccine. Like, yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, I've talked to a few people like that and say, well, whatever. I'm, I'm kind of a, a more stoic, I suppose. And it's like, well, we're here now, so let's just deal with this situation. Regret is not going to help you. It's going to make you feel bad. And so, and I don't want you to feel bad because that means you'll get worse outcomes. So let's just, you just sit there and you breathe don't take your oxygen off and we'll just carry on as, and see what your lungs do as we go through this process together. Um, but I've seen a lot of people regret their decision. That is regret their decision not to have a vaccine. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, correct. David, look, thank you very much for your time. And I hope you can get back to Australia soon and see your family back here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much, Pat. Good on you. Thanks for the talking. Thanks very much. And hope we uh, see you again sometime soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the National Civic Council's podcast, A Stronger Australia. The National Civic Council is a non-party political movement which seeks to build a strong and prosperous nation. Through our policy, research and advocacy, we stand up against the greatest threats to the family and the Australian way of life. The NCC also produces the fortnightly magazine News Weekly, which covers all topics relating to a stronger Australia. Subscribe at ncc.org.au forward slash newsweekly. We look forward to joining you for our next episode. Thank you for listening.